Psalm 39, to the choir master, to Jedathan. Jedathan was a temple musician appointed by David, who presumably this psalm was was devoted to a psalm of David. David writes, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail or more literally, I was silent from good. But my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O oh, Yahweh, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing, for breath, they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. One of the most helpful things you learn from people who read the Bible well, who go beyond the superficial and the predictable, is to run towards the problems in a text and not away from them. It's tempting when something about a passage doesn't quite seem to make sense just to squash it down or skirt around it, but it's often in confronting those questions head on that the message grows livelier and the truth sinks deeper. Well, I think Psalm 39 is one of those passages with a big, obvious question hanging over it. And it's this. How is it meant to help? That's a question you often find yourself asking about popular remedies, isn't it? A part of me always felt a little bit less easy prescribing a drug when we've got no idea how it actually works. Apparently there's a long tradition in some parts of Europe of using a syrup made of snail slime to treat anything from coughs to acne. You'll be really disappointed, I'm sure, to hear that it is currently unavailable on Amazon. Maybe COVID's made us all stock up. But if Psalm 39 is going to help us, we need to be sure, don't we, that David isn't just selling us an expensive bottle of snail slime. As he writes, he clearly has a deep, 
painful problem and also a remedy. That comes in verse 4. O Yahweh, make me know my end. Teach me how fleeting my life truly is. What isn't so obvious is how on earth that is meant to improve things. Maybe it's just a counsel of despair. Some people read the psalm like that. Teach me, Lord, that I'm going to die soon. So none of this sorrow matters anyway. The thing is, the Bible doesn't often give such glib answers to suffering. Never mind. It'll all be over when you die. Some people read this as David praying in a bit of a sulk. He knew that he shouldn't say these sorts of things to God, but this is what he really wanted to say. I think, though, it's meant to offer more help to us than that. And so the challenge as we open up his prayer will be joining it all together, the problem with the remedy. David is still right where he was last time in Psalm 38. He's suffering bitterly. He's surrounded by people who are rejoicing in his pain. And most importantly, the backdrop is still God's anger at his sin. God in his discipline, verse 11, has taken away everything he holds precious, literally dissolved it, consumed it like a moth. And so how do you pray when your life is dissolving like lace, when your joy unravels like a jumper? I guess in times like that, many of us would feel how David does here, not just guilty, but angry. Anger's been a big theme of these last few songs, hasn't it? He's angry with himself. He's angry with those who are taking advantage. And at his most honest... He's angry with the God whose love seems so heavy-handed. So how do you pray when you're there, when your heart is there? Well, first, verses 1 to 3, David tries to hold it in until he discovers what sooner or later we all learn. He holds it in, but bitterness burns under our tongue. And it's tempting to criticise David for even trying, isn't it? Because in our culture, there's no greater sin than repressing your feelings. Sadly, the Britain of the stiff upper lip died long ago, didn't it? Some of us have been trying valiantly to pretend she's still alive. But we good as held the funeral rites this month, watching even our royals spill it all out on Oprah Winfrey. David's a different kind of king, though. We've watched now, we've watched for three psalms in a row while he's tried to stay mute, deaf and dumb in the face of terrible pain and vicious insults as he's fought that battle with his own tongue. And we've seen echoes in his struggle of our king as he bore our guilt. Jesus led like a lamb to the slaughter, silent before the shearers, reviled but opening not his mouth as he was mocked and smeared and even strung up to die on false charges, he bit his tongue and prayed for his enemies. And so David's instinct is exactly right. There's something us verbally and emotionally incontinent moderns need to learn from him. So long as the wicked are in my presence, verse 1, I will muzzle my mouth. I won't say anything that will denigrate my God or question his goodness or complain about his justice. Because he knows that the tongue 
is the most slippery organ in the whole body. Keeping a grip on it can be like wrestling a bar of soap. While he's hurt and he's angry, what sort of things are likely to come spilling out? It's exactly then, isn't it, when we're wounded, when we're full of self-pity, that we're most likely to lash out at the people around us or to say things about God we might regret. And those people who are looking for ammo would pounce on it in a flash. You see that down in verse 8. Fools love any sign of weakness or sin in God's king, or for that matter in us, his people. It's great sport, seeing the goody-goodies of this world letting themselves down and cursing their God. So it's loyalty that puts a leash on David's tongue. It's not a bad thing. He knows his own weakness. He knows just how thrilled the devil would be to see his words undermine God's love. And so even now, while he burns inside, he battles with all his might to be careful with those words and humble in his tone. Verse 2 is pretty tricky to understand. Literally, the Hebrew says, I was silent from good. Our ESVs give us quite a, a stretch of an interpretation there. I was silent to no good, to no avail. I think more literally, Calvin reads that. Uh, he reads that in a more helpful way. I was silent out of good purpose, silent even from saying anything good. I could have made a good and just defense of myself, but I didn't trust my tongue. Don't you admire that strength? But he's only human, even David. He can't betray his God, he won't. Even when God is angry with him and he is angry with God, and yet at the same time, he just can't keep it in forever. The distress grew worse, the fire grew. Sometimes grief is like trying to hold a whale on the end of a fishing line. However hard you fight, it's going to break away because bitterness burns under our tongue. Somehow we have to deal with it. So how do you pray then when all the words you want to speak are full of anger and resentment? Well, David's solution is to talk to God, not talk behind his back. He wants the suffering to go. He wants God's discipline removed, and he'll come to that. But there's a more urgent problem first while he wrestles with that anger. How do I hold my tongue? How do I deal with the fire? He needs God's help if he's going to handle that. So verses four to six, he longs to learn. And it's the lesson he needs to learn, the things he hoped will help him hold his tongue that seem rather surprising. He longs to learn how quickly life slips through our fingers. Now I guess that doesn't sound like much of a comforting thought to any but those of us in the darkest of places, but let's keep our powder dry for now on how on earth it's meant to help. I think the best way we'll discover that will be to see what it does to David. But how many of us have the courage to ask what David asks for here? Here is a man who feels close to the end. 
exhausted, unwell, clinging to life, how would you pray then? Teach me how frail I am. Teach me how fleeting my time is. I'd imagine we'd ask for the very opposite, wouldn't we? Lord, I feel so frail already. Make me feel strong again. How often have you ever actually asked God that you would learn from your suffering before you ask him to take it away from you? David wants to feel and believe right down to his very bones, just how fragile his existence in this world really is. In other words, he wants to face reality. Life slips between your fingers faster than sand. That's reality, isn't it? We blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree and wither and perish. But naught changes thee. It's you, verse 5, who has made me this way. You are entirely different, unchanging, the source of all life, timeless, ageless. It's before you that my entire life flashes by like nothing. And not just mine, but all mankind. Those who love me, those who are laughing at me right now. The key word, David uses is the word which stars in the book of Ecclesiastes, Havel. It's on that little list of Hebrew words that every Christian ought to learn. It means breath, nothingness, vanity. That's the mark we leave behind. Now we prefer to go through life playing make-belief, pretending it isn't true. That word stands in verse 5 usually means stands firm. He's saying that even those of us who seem indestructible, who think they're standing firm, even they are nothing but a breath. Our lives walking about here on earth are like shadows, an illusion, a forgery of the real thing. Sometimes we think of people in heaven a bit like ghosts, but it's the other way around. It's us who are paper thin, fading away. All our turmoil, verse 6, are busy rushing around, comes to nothing, a breath of air. Picture a man out in his front garden with a leaf blower. Isn't that the most futile job in the world? You pile up the leaves, only for the wind to blow them all away again. That is what an entire human life looks like from the perspective of eternity. Dust to dust, we gather up wealth, for no one else ever to enjoy. We heap, no one gathers, like leaves in a gale. And what is David's prayer as he burns and he grieves? Lord, teach me that. As I suffer under your hand, let me learn that deeply, right down to my bones. Twitter is an appalling place where Millions of us go to waste our time, but there's one account on there worth following. It's called Daily Death Reminder. It sends out just one message, the same four words every day. You will die someday. And 35,000 people follow that account. It is hands down the most profound thing on my entire timeline. You will die someday. 
Why is that then such a helpful message to really absorb? Well, the answer comes in verses 7 to 13. It's more than snail syrup. It's more than just a counsel of despair. In fact, strangely, it's accepting the futility of human life in this dying world that we can actually find real purpose. And we've uncovered some of the clues already. There was one exception to the rule. One who made while everything else decayed. One ancient of days before whom our lives flash past. So picture David fuming under God's frown, boiling with bitterness, desperately, loyally, faithfully trying to hold his tongue and unable to keep it all in. Where should he pour out all that grief? Well, not to other fleeting human beings in some flow of fury. Surely there's only one place and one way, humbly, before this eternal, almighty God. That is the logic which drives verse 7, isn't it? Who else would I wait for in a world where every single one of us is just a flash in the pan? Who else would I put my hope in but my everlasting Lord? It's accepting that reality which helps us respond rightly when God is angry with us. Life is too short, too fleeting to fume away under his frown. He held it in, but bitterness burns under our tongue. And so he longed to learn, to learn how quickly life slips through our fingers. And having learned that, verses 7 to 13, he lets it out to the right person and in the right way, because only his forgiveness can bring a smile back to our face. It's right that we bite our tongues sometimes, rather than say anything that denigrates God before an unbelieving world. But it's also right when we're angry and when we're in pain that we pour out our hearts to him, especially when we worry deep down that he's the one behind our suffering. Because no one else can deliver us from the real problem, verse 8. Our own transgression. Yes, David wants the punishment to stop. He says that in verse 10. He wants God to look away from him with his anger, verse 13. But don't mistake what's happening. It's not only God's punishment that he's regretting here. Often that's really what we mean, isn't it? When we say we're sorry. We see that in our kids all the time, but the truth is we're just the same. Kids say they're sorry, but most of the time we know they're not really. They're sorry about the consequences, sorry they've been caught. This is something very different. It's the sin, the transgression he wants rescue from, not just the punishment. Once again, In verse 9, he says he won't open his mouth to complain because he knows it's God behind his sorrow. It's just, it's deserved. The reason he asks for it to stop is that at last, it's done its job. I'm spent, verse 10. It means finished, completed. You see, God's discipline has done its work. He's learnt how frail he truly is. And he's learnt that there's only one way back. 
he will only ever smile again in this cursed world if God takes away his frown. What he needs is forgiveness. Now, do you see what it took to get him to that point, to get him to a place where he was able to ask the right thing from the right person? Here's the lesson, if I can paraphrase Calvin. No one ever learns to depend on God and rest their hope in him until they feel how frail and hopeless all the alternatives are. First, he had to accept that nothing else in all the world would put things right, not even vengeance on his enemies, because what is man but a mere breath? There was no treasure in this world that could put out that burning bitterness inside him or the aching guilt in his heart. And so sometimes, verse 11, God's discipline has to dissolve all the things of this world that we treasure. He has to teach us while we have time that we are guests here before an eternal God, just pilgrims passing through. This place cannot be our home. It cannot be our happiness and it cannot fix our sorrows. And verse 12, all my fathers knew the same. Real Bible faith has always been that. It meant looking for our home in a better country looking for a treasure no moth could destroy. And so three times in verse 12, each line more intense, he looks for his comfort from the only one who can give that true treasure. He asks God to come close in love and compassion. Turn your ear towards me. Don't be silent to my tears. Do you see then why that last verse can't mean what... So many people seem to think it means he's not saying there that he wants God to turn away from him and let him die in sulking despair. Because what he's just asked for is the exact opposite. Lord, give your ear to my tears. What he's saying here is turn your anger away from me and let me live out what is left of this life as your son forgiven. Under your smile, I can smile once again. How do you speak to God then when he is angry with you and you feel angry towards him? How do you respond well to his discipline? How do you hold your tongue and not boil away in bitterness? Well, our king knew more than any how hard that was. He faced the glee and the scorn of fools, thrilled that righteous Jesus was suffering a sinner's death, sin he bore for other people. And yet even then he bit his tongue and looked to his father. So when we're struggling to speak anything but bitterness and anger, his answer is pray with me. I've made a way for you. Remember how quickly life here slips between your fingers. It is simply too short to spend it like that. So now, O Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you and no one else. Deliver me from all my transgression.
Let's be quiet for a moment and bow our heads. Loving and patient Father, help us, we pray, to be honest with ourselves about the weakness and the dangers that boil away in our own hearts. When we're angry and guilty and hurt, help us to handle your discipline as those who hope in your gracious Son. Help us to guard our tongues from sin and remember the shortness of our days and pour out our repentance to you, the King of the Ages. For we ask it in the hope of a better country. In Jesus' name.